0: In the Knowledge at Wharton studio today, we have Mike Yusim, Howard Gandrathur, and Irwan Michel Kerjan, uh, and we are here to talk with them about their book, Leadership Dispatches. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today at the Knowledge at Wharton studio. Now, several earthquakes and natural disasters take place all over the world. What was it about the earthquake in Chile in to February 2010 that, and the government's response that you decided to write this book about it.
1: Well, let me start here, Mukul, uh, and then Mike and, and Harold Chamin. I mean, let, let's talk about the power of the earthquake. I mean, that was not just another earthquake. That earthquake was really a, a massive earthquake, um, so powerful indeed that it actually moved the entire country and the axis of planet Earth permanently. Uh, that earthquake was, in terms of energy released, 500 times stronger than the one that happened a few weeks before in '80 that got a lot of media attention. So that was was a monster earthquake, Uh, an earthquake that uh, knocked out 20% of the GDP of the country. So we had a great interest in looking at an extreme event. And as
2: we began to look at the recovery from it, we were stunned by how rapidly and how completely the country did come back. Uh, It's an assessment that's shared by... Uh, various international agencies, the World Bank, IMF, the credit rating agencies that do sovereign debt rating, all said uh, pretty remarkable. Within six weeks, with about a third of the country's schools destroyed or seriously uh, damaged, all three million, million, 3-plus million Chilean school kids were back in school. And within a couple of years... Uh, the country had put in back in place about a quarter million homes that had been destroyed, and if you take that relative uh, to the U.S., uh, it would have been close to eight million homes reconstructed or built from new where they had been destroyed by the government and by private uh, entities as well. So, killer earthquake, sixth biggest ever in recorded history, and other side of that, one of the most complete and rapid comebacks with which we're familiar. Thanks, Mike.
3: To add to what Erwin and Mike had to say, I think there were – two other aspects that were, I think, important here. One is we had a newly elected president who was coming in with, in fact, he hadn't even taken office at the time the earthquake occurred, but he obviously was preparing himself for what would happen, who had a a very strong business perspective and really wanted to make sure that he could set the goals that Mike was just referring to right at the outset in terms of what had to be done. And in the process of doing that, was able to mobilize a whole set of people to follow through with him. So that's point number one. The other point is that Chile had a long history of earthquakes, serious earthquakes. everyone pointed out that this was a killer earthquake. They even had one that was more serious a number of years back, and they were really in a position where they had developed a whole set of institutions that were in a position to actually deal with this earthquake in a way that made it feasible for President Pinera to actually go forward with the kind of meeting the goals that he had in front of him.
0: So that's a very interesting point which you bring up in the book, that the earthquake happened during a time of political transition. And I was wondering if you could explain the implications of that a little bit and what impact it had on the way in which the recovery was done. Yeah,
2: I'll pick up on that. The earthquake uh, is essentially less than two weeks before – the presidential sash is passed from Michelle Bachelet who had served for 4 years as country president to Sebastian Pinera the newly elected president and uh, not that it's a vacuum at that time but people are beginning to head out of the office new people are getting ready to come into the office and Sebastian Pinera and his party had campaigned for the the White House La Moneda is the the term they use for the residence of the president on the premise that the Chilean economy had to be strengthened. They had pledged to create a couple million jobs. Sebastian Panier and his team had pledged to restore the country back to a 6 to 7% annual GDP growth. And, again, one of the remarkable moments, at least for us, is that as the earthquake hits, uh, destruction everywhere. Just to make it graphic, a 15-story, fairly new building in the major city, Concepcion, which is not too far from the epicenter, literally toppled. It didn't crumble. It just literally rotated 90 degrees. One of the residents said, I'm in my room, and all of a sudden, the ceiling of the room is going vertically, and the floor is uh, uh, similarly uh, positioned when it was not that uh, three minutes earlier. So with that as a as a circumstance, the outgoing president, Michelle Bachelet, and the incoming president-elect, Sebastian Pinera, together in this transition period began to uh, lock arms and plunged into immediate um, emergency responses. But then as the president, the new president, took office, he said to himself, he said to his advisors, to their shock at the outset. We're not going to let up on any of our campaign promises. We're going to get this country economically back to a very robust growth rate of at least 6%. And during the four years that they had, presidential administrations there can serve only for four years. They can come back later on. We're going to do two things. We're going to get this country completely back to where it was, all 200,000-plus homes to be restored, all hospitals that have been destroyed to be reconstructed, all schoolchildren to be back in schools at work. Uh, And we're going to do that, plus we're going to leave this country when they exit better prepared for the next one. And Chile being on a fault line, a huge fault line, much like California, uh, that was probably a very good idea because the next one could be indeed bigger. So quick summary is that the... President came in and did not lend, let up on original his original campaign promises. On top of that, pledged to restore the country, plus put it in a more vital position. And the finance minister, in working hand in hand, I'll turn this over to Airwan to pick up on this. Uh, the two of them together said, "We're going to do this without." making us indebted uh, in the future without imposing a cost of all this on our children.
1: Yeah, yeah, just to stay on that one, what what was remarkable to us, that's why we write the book, is none of these, uh, whether it's the president, Felipe Lara, and the finance minister, and most of the ministers, equivalent of secretaries here in the U.S., uh, I don't want to say none of them, but most of them had never been in government before. Um, so the president, as, as, Howard, uh, as Howard and Mike mentioned, was a business leader. He was hitting uh, some of the largest corporations in Chile. The uh Philippe Lara the finance minister was a great academic but had never served in a government capacity. So you have a new administration, which is a right-wing administration, after 20 years of left-wing uh, administration in power, uh, that will have, and we'll come back to that in a minute, that will have to Look at the uh, campaign promises and and look at that and say maybe maybe we need to uh, to change that uh, and actually they did not so I mean that's pretty remarkable on many many fronts that's why the subtitle of the book is a uh, Chile extraordinary comeback from a disaster because by all metrics that has been truly extraordinary.
0: Interesting. Now you say that the the Chile's comeback you say in the book required a two part recipe. Uh, there was national able national leadership and Strong Institutional Practices. Uh, could you explain to our audience what are the elements of this two-part recipe and how they worked in practice?
3: Yeah. Well, let me start with the institutional practices and then move on, and, other, and, and Mike and Erwan can also chime in on this. The institutional practices were really due to the fact that Chile did have this history, as we mentioned, of earthquakes, and give you two examples of how that played out. One had to do with building codes. And it is certainly true that there were occasional buildings that did come down, and the one that Mike mentioned was one that actually happened in a very, very salient fashion. But most of the buildings survived. And the reason that these buildings survived and did far better, for example, than the Haitian earthquake where everything was destroyed because there were no building codes, and, and and these buildings just crumbled as a result of that. In Chile, what they basically had was they had a, a law that had been passed a few years back now and was actually enforced that any developer, anyone who had actually put together a building and constructed the building was responsible for any of the damages for a decade after that building was constructed. And if they there was some damage or something had happened, it was conceivable that they could go to prison. And we mentioned that in the book, that there was that op- that had been actually at a point where some a few people had gone in prison, and so I think that as a as a development is something that we know of no other country. We've actually asked the question: Could something like that be done in the United States? And it would be extraordinarily hard to do that. Part of it has to do with the fact that building codes are at the state level, but no state has ever instituted that process, and it's also because of the fact that it was that Chile was really determined to make sure that their buildings withstand. The other aspect is with earthquake insurance as another protective mechanism. In our country, in the United States, there are relatively few, about 10% of the people actually have earthquake insurance, and it isn't required by the banks and financial institutions. We had 96% of the people, of, of, of the mortgaged homes in Chile, actually had insurance because the banks were requiring it. That is the case, by the way, in the U.S. with homeowners insurance, but it turns out with earthquake, it is not the case. So that's on the institutional level. On the the leadership level, I think you've already heard, and maybe Mike and everyone want to elaborate on that, the enormous ability for uh, Pinera to really sort of say, this is something we have to really make sure that we we actually maintain our, our goals. We follow through on that. We're able to get people to pay attention to these things and also to show progress. It had some consequences and in the sense that not every goal was met exactly or there were things that actually fell back. But in general, they did extraordinarily well
2: because of that. These uh, institutional features or institutional patterns or just the institutions of Chile at the time, uh, very strong building codes, a uh, rule of law. Uh, when he, when the national legislature passes legislation, it actually is enacted and, and imposed uh, a very important foundation. On top of that, the institutional context, those who came into office, and Erwan referenced the fact that many had come out of business where they were used to getting things done. They had a strategy and they could execute around it. Sebastian Pinera himself out of business, many of the people in his cabinet, not politicians, but people who had a uh, a record of making things happen. They moved, if there's a discretionary scale from doing not so much to doing a whole lot, they moved in the doing a whole lot direction.
0: What were the key leadership decisions that helped Chile bounce back from the earthquake despite the devastation? And how did these differ from decisions made in other situations where recovery might have taken longer? Let me start by saying, we haven't touched on the
1: human aspect. Despite the um, massive power of the earthquake only, quote-unquote, only 500 people died, most of them from the tsunami that came after the earthquake. So to go back to Howard's point about building codes making a big difference, and, you know, for, for people, building codes are a fairly dry topic. You know, It's not engineering, and, it, you know, when, when your family is in the building, uh, it's a little bit less dry whether you're going to survive or not. So, just, so it's remarkable because the earthquake happened at about 3 a.m. in the morning, So most of the people were sleeping. So the fact that only about 150 people died directly from the earthquake is is pretty remarkable. So it's 150 people in Chile versus about 150,000 people in Haiti Uh, for an earthquake that was much less powerful. So that's one, which means that the president, the new president, could actually think very quickly about recovery. Uh, If you have 10,000 people who just died, it's very different to handle than "Quote unquote, five only five 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 hundred people. So that that's point number one on the human aspect. I think what and we talk a lot about that in in the book. Imagine you're a new president yourself. Um, I'm talking to the listeners now. Uh, the big challenge you have in front of you is how do you manage a short term versus long term relationship? You know you're going to be president for only four years. Mike mentioned that it's a four year mandate. You cannot you can you cannot. Um, Uh, campaign again for another four years which is great because you can actually spend your four years doing the work rather than thinking about your next campaign Uh, but you have only four years at the same time you you are going to make decisions you as as a top leader in the government that will have an impact on the country for many years to come and there is a tendency to concentrate on the short term saying i'm going to deliver everything by more. Let's rebuild at the same place that where these buildings were. Uh, and I think Pinera and his his cabinet, and we talked to many of them. Um, the um, Ministry of uh, of uh, housing, for instance, was was a remarkable person. Most of them were remarkable, really. Uh, saying, well, we're not going to rebuild. We're going to rebuild better. Uh, but that means that the popularity of the president. I'm sure we'll come back to that. Uh, was hit by that because obviously, what could have been done in let's say a year by simply rebuilding cheaply, uh, took two or three years. So many people complain about that. But at the end of the four years mandate, the uh, popularity of the president was back on track, even higher than what it was when he was elected, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, we don't have many examples around the world of something like that happened. But that the tension that any leader will have the short-term, long-term relationship. So
3: let me build on what Erwan said, because I think this really reflects uh, a difference, as you were raising, McCool, in terms of how Chile responded differently than a lot of other places. The... um, Pinera not only had his eye on the ball with respect to the long-term, as One indicated, but he also recognized you had to have some short-term victories and some short-term responses in order to make sure that things were going in the right direction. So it's a combination of the long-term aspects and the short-term. And what he did, which I think is often not done, but it's a part of our checklist and, and, and the framework we had, he really engaged in deliberative thinking. He really engaged in the strategy to saying, what are the the cost of doing things and what are the benefits? And as everyone pointed out, he kept thinking about the long term as a part of that. And what we see in so many other situations is that the short term just dominates, and you say, I've got to be successful here. I've got to have a result that everyone will appreciate. And I'm only in office for so long. And we have our little expression that I'll just throw out that you may have heard on NIMTOF. Uh, the not in my term of office becomes a notion. Well, at, at here, Pinera basically sort of said, look – this is something we have to live with in the long term, and we have got to deal with this. But at the same time, we have to recognize if we're going to rebuild homes and we're going to rebuild them better, we also have to have some short-term results. And as Mike indicated earlier on, on education in the schools, he had, a, he had a mandate that he said we have got to follow and make sure that these schools are open within 40 days. And he was able to do that and made sure that his lieutenants and the people who are working with him were able to deliver. And I think it's that notion that everyone was working together – Becomes very important here.
1: And if you can have just one word on the schools, because people don't necessarily realize, but the school is always the number one priority. Because if the kids are not in schools, they are at home. If they're at home, no one is working. One more
2: piece on this decision on the schools. Sebastian Pinera said, as the earthquake hit at the very end of summertime, February is the end of summertime in Chile, way down there in the southern hemisphere that if we don't get these kids back in school, they're going to lose a whole school year. A third of the kids have no school, and if they are not there, besides the fact that their parents are going to have a hard time going to work, if they can go to work, if the school kids are not in schools, you don't want a country to lose, or a third of the country, to lose a whole school year. So he said, a little bit to the shock of his minister of education, he said publicly, we're going to have every school child." Back in school within six weeks, period. Now, some of those were uh, kind of prefabricated uh, barracks that they put up. They actually took some school buses, removed the tires, and made them into quote schools. But the main point, I think, here on this presidential decision-making is that the president appreciated this could be done. Many people said it could not be done. And then executed around that. So he was in touch with his minister of education almost every day. How's it going? Are we going to get that uh, objective met within six weeks? So vision and they had a strategy to go with it. And a chapter right out of business effective leadership, he and his lieutenants, a very strong cabinet as several – both of my colleagues have indicated – they could execute, which meant that they could bring it to reality. Six six weeks later, every school kid was back in school.
3: And let me just say one last point on, on this whole thing, elaborating on what everyone and Mike have just said, that he was able to mobilize the whole country in support of that. This is a major, major victory for the, all the reasons you've just heard. And everyone said, boy, if he can do that, then he's really on a winning path over here. And so it was extraordinarily important for him to succeed here. Everyone understood that if that wasn't going to happen and the schools were going to be delayed for another few weeks, the press would pick up on that, and everyone else was. But if he did deliver, he was going to have the support of every group to somehow say this person is in charge. He's exerting leadership principles.
0: Uh, you use a term in the book "tiered leadership." Uh, and I wonder if you can explain a little bit about how he worked with his sure. team, with the leadership team, sure. to drive the outcomes that you know you're describing. The
2: idea of tiered leadership is simple and really comes down to this. You just can't do everything yourself. And as soon as we appreciate that, we know we've got to work through others. We have to construct housing through the minister Ministry of Housing, which itself is a huge agency. So working the logic there, Sebastian Pinera took a vision, had a strategy to go with it about reconstructing the country – on a very tough timetable with more more being there at the end than he, than there was at the outset want to make the country more earthquake resistant in the future but to do that he did have to have great people working for him in his cabinet so he was assiduous as anybody running any organization about picking people who understood his philosophy shared his vision for the country uh, but equally importantly could actually make things happen. So we went to a number of people that had been making things happen. For example, uh, the person who became minister of mines had run the country's biggest um, retail uh, system, a kind of a target-like uh, store system. The person, when asked to become minister of mines, said, I don't know a whole lot about mining. Sebastian Pinera said, I know that. Well, I'm going to have a hard time creating after somebody's in office, is an ability to get things done. So that's the second tier. The lieutenants, the direct reports, there were more than 20. And then they, in turn, understanding the president's leadership philosophy, understanding it more than that, they had exercised it themselves, they, in turn, brought their lieutenants into office who could actually make things happen. And, by the way, uh, we saw this almost déjà vu Five months later, when this terrible mining accident occurs up in the northern part of the country, 33 miners are trapped, and just true to form, Sebastian Pinera, the president said, we're going to take charge of that, and we're going to get these guys home. Now, that was something that most people thought was never going to happen, but having put a good minister of mines in place, and he in turn had others in place, and the president kind of (laughs) riding everybody to get the job done quickly so that these miners are back to the surface before they starve to death, had to be found to begin with. Uh, The the country, the president, was able to bring back the 33 miners about two months, a little over two months later,
0: through tiered leadership. In the book, you present a leadership checklist of how, uh, country can recover from a catastrophe. Could you uh, take take us through some of the elements of that checklist and how uh, it, it can be used uh, in these kinds of situations?
1: Sure. Um, well, I think we were, So first of all, let me say, we, we met several times with all of these people. So it's not us doing that from our desk here at the Warden School. Uh, I think that's important for listeners to understand that. We went to Santiago uh, several times. Uh, some of us, Mike, was uh, the president several times. Um, that 's a book about how the the head of an organization uh, can handle shocks, so forget about a moment about the nature of the shock. It could be a financial crisis, it could be a cyber attack, it could be in pandemics in that case that 's a massive earthquake. but uh, almost I would like to say it doesn 't matter. Uh, I think we touched about uh, upon a few of these things: one is you demonstrate that you are in charge, uh, recognize that you need specific expertise to answer the issue and uh, be ready to hire people with that expertise, uh, or hire people who can deliver. And I think too often what we've seen in many crises, including here in the United States, where you keep your, your team as is and you try to opt for the best, not recognizing that the condition under which you're working have have, have changed. So that, that's one. Uh, two is to uh, recognize very officially, quickly, that you're not going to do that by yourself. Uh, Mike just talked about that. It's not just the government, actually. Uh, we have a big chapter in the book about the role of the private sector, about civil society, the NGO world. So uh, really, uh, breaking the barriers is, is critical as well. And uh, almost as a military uh, strategy development, I have very specific goals. All the goals that the president put together were all public goals. So all of that were put on a website, which is very unusual. So being as transparent as possible... And be ready to be hit on your popularity level. That's fine. You're not, you're not the president to be loved by people necessarily on the day of the uh, job. You, you're here to move your country forward.
3: Yeah. So l- let me uh, j- just elaborate for a moment on the, the notions that, as Erwin was saying, this is an important component and you. Uh, but uh, if you, the checklist serves as a way to get everyone to focus on. A important set of principles and issues, and they will vary depending on what one is doing. Uh, we, there was a leadership checklist that was constructed that was built to, to some extent on a framework that says you really have to begin to think strategically and make sure that everyone understands essentially where you're going. So I'll read you just a few uh, points on a leadership leader's checklist just to highlight that. Articulate a vision. So make sure that everyone is clear. Where are we going? Where are we going in the long term? And then think and act strategically in order to be able to deal with that vision. What are the personal implications? Identify the personal implications of that communicate persuasively so that one is able to deal with that so people will pay attention and decide decisively. Then the motivation of the troops, which tie, ties in with the points that Mike was raising on tiered leadership. And then we have a checklist for tiered leadership. I won't go through all of these, but the idea was to really provide a notion of the things that could be done and then elaborate them in the context of a variety of decisions that are going to have to be made. And that's what we felt was important. And at the end of each of the chapters, there's a checklist so that. People who want to then look at what should be done can actually focus on that. And the chapter is sort of building towards the end where, at the end of the chapter, where people can actually deal with that.
2: Which, by the way, is why we did the book. So we're personally interested in uh, Chile. I'd been there personally a number of times before. But as we stood back and looked at the rapidity and completeness of the recovery, we're thinking, since all three of us have often thought about crisis management and protections against significant risks and how to have resilience in place before terrible things happen, it became a case study in the best sense of that phrase. Um, many things they did didn't work so well, but a good number of things that were done did work well. And then to take those ideas out of Chile, our task in writing a book was to phrase and frame them in a way where somebody who's never been to Chile, doesn't speak a word of Spanish, never plans to uh, visit that part of South America, can say, whoa, in light of what happened there, we think um, there may be some ideas for back here. And with that, I'm going to reference an epilogue that we did for the book because I think there's probably no better illustration of that than a certain governor-elect in California a few years in the future, facing a very tough moment,
1: and wonders what she ought to be doing. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, that's yeah. We, we looked at what what Japan had done, what European countries have done, what the U.S. has done, uh, generally. And uh, I think the book the book is written as a story. That's that's not an academic book, so to speak, in in terms of you know, having a lot of. We have a lot of data, but it's really a story. So you can you can follow across the different chapters the story of individuals. Uh, we try to uh, be as neutral as possible in our description, but that's that's great story with a great ending. As as uh, Mike mentioned too, is well the question: what well, what does that mean for me as a executive of a big corporation here in America, or me as a, a future uh, governor of California, uh, given given the exposure of California to earthquake? Would be hard after a big earthquake in California. For all of us to pretend that we didn't know that an earthquake would happen there, uh, we're just waiting for the earthquake to happen. So, um, and you know, California being the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, take as a standalone, that would be a big, big deal. Uh, what are we doing
0: about it? Not enough. No, d- disasters are always expensive. Um, Can we talk a little bit about how the recovery was financed? Hmm. Sure.
2: <laughs> well, l- we let me start? do the cover on that, and then my colleagues will fill in. The quite amazing, extraordinary story of how this country dug out of a disaster that, by our standards, would have been something 20 times greater financially than what Katrina did to this country as that hurricane uh, did hit. Uh, the impact on the GDP, we've already mentioned this earlier, was around 18 to 20 percent. 18 20 percent of the GDP wiped out in three minutes you put that in dollar terms back in the U.S., we're talking about $2.plus of damage, uh, 20 times more than what Katrina opposed on this country. So just think about the huge setback at the very time the president has committed to getting this country growing at a 6% annual growth rate. So paying for the recovery, it could be done and was done in a way that did not bankrupt the country, didn't put it hugely in debt, and got the country actually back to the 6% growth rate.
1: Well, the other, just to summarize basically who paid what here, uh, what was remarkable in Chile is that the um, insurance, the role of the insurance and reinsurance market have played in Chile. Uh, Chile has been by uh, many economic metrics doing extremely well in recent years, one of them being the insurance penetration. So that's the fastest growing insurance market in in Latin America. And uh, the fact, that Howard referred earlier, that many of the people were living there and businesses, not just the people had earthquake insurance, uh, helped the president and finance minister, Felipe Rora. Now you're looking at that massive shock in your economy. And after looking at the data, you say, well, one third of that. One third of that would be paid by... Insures and reinsurers, most of them outside of Chile. So, you right now, you you start breathing a little bit, saying, well, maybe it's not 18%, it's 12%. It's still massive, but you know that an influx of capital will come. Uh, and then, the remaining 12% is a mix of uh, private sector exposure and public sector exposure. Private sector, that would be for the private sector to pay for it. On the public sector side, what was remarkable, and we spent a fair amount of time with Felipe Larrain, the finance minister, is that If something like that had happened in the U.S., the first thing we would have done, as we have done in recent years, is to basically go to Congress and ask for Congress to, you know, print more money or ask our children and grandchildren to pay for that. So basically increase our debt. Uh, Chile didn't want to do that. Actually, Chile is running a surplus as a country, which is very rare these days. Uh, And they had set up a sovereign fund that was set up to handle macroeconomic shocks. Uh, in, ca- in the aftermath of the um, of the uh, financial crisis in 08-09. So, again, remember, we we're talking about earthquake in 2010 after the massive 08-09 financial crisis that, that hit many countries around the world. So they decided not to touch on that sovereign fund, which was pretty um, courageous, to say the least, and instead of that actually increased taxes on businesses, which was exactly what they had uh, run a campaign against Uh, two years earlier. So politically, that was a very, very brave uh, move here. And they told the business leaders that this increase in taxes would be temporary, only for two years. And that was actually temporary, only for two years. So um, that was good. And then they issue a bond for about a billion dollars. It's remarkable. The bond was issued at just a notch above the U.S. Treasury bond, which was the lowest rate that Chile ever got in the 200 years of existence of that country. Uh, and very close to the U.S. Treasury bond rate, which is remarkable for a, a country that just entered the OECD.
3: And the only other point that I would add on that is that you got support from a number of sources, NGOs helped, you got other countries that were providing uh, um, assistance in various forms, whether it was equipment or whether it was tents or whether it was other forms of aid, they all came to the rescue. And I think there was really a, a feeling of a community, a spirit that everyone had to cooperate and everyone had to play a role. And the other point I think that's really important to highlight, which we have, but let me say it again. Is the fact is that Chile was prepared for this in a way that reduced essentially the need for them to have to rely on the huge amount of money that would have and the, the tremendous impact this would have had had they not had a variety of these building codes in place and other features and they had plans for the recovery. So you were in a position of having done things beforehand so that people could actually then respond to it in a way that they otherwise wouldn't have.
0: And one last question for each of you. Uh, What do you think are the main lessons that other countries should learn uh, from Chile's experience in terms of preparing for disasters before they happen, dealing with them while they happen, and then making sure that they are uh, well protected after they happen and things happen well?
3: All right. Well I'll start and my colleagues will follow through. I think that the the challenge in all of this is to recognize the fact that events that you say are not going to happen to me or not to us as a country will happen and that you recognize the fact that they are low probabilities, they are below one's threshold of concern, one has to pay attention and do some planning. Having said that, if you're going to recognize that, then you have to put in place in your own head beforehand and then implemented afterwards, which I think came about with Chile, the fact that you need to act long-term and strategically and do the appropriate trade-offs. And that's extraordinarily hard to do. We referenced Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, as a part of our framework, simply because of the fact that he points out that so often decisions are made, we make hundreds of decisions every day, on the basis of intuitive judgment without thinking through deliberatively And they usually are very successful for most of our decisions. But when you're dealing with low probability events, events that people would prefer not to think about, then the idea is to figure out how you can put that on the radar screen before the disaster in order to avoid the problems one would have. And so the thinking uh, deliberatively beforehand and then putting in place uh, essentially institutional arrangements that would enable one to respond after the fact.
1: Well, I'll be – brief um i think the main takeaway is first of all it's possible to recover and when you look at all the data in chile um all the data were against chile i mean that was impossible to recover from something like that uh, but they did so it, that's why it's spectacular uh i think more to the point if you if you're someone in charge as harold mentioned the likelihood of something happening under your watch is much higher these days than it used to be So maybe 20 years ago, you could, as a president or prime minister or finance minister, you could have ignored these issues, saying, well, I hope they will not happen under my watch. Uh, Right now, it's very unlikely that nothing will happen, will not happen under your watch. So look at the U.S., well, President Bush had to handle um, Hurricane Katrina, and then a little bit of, of the financial crisis, and President Obama had to handle the financial crisis, and Hurricane Sandy. Uh, Who knows who will be the next president, but I'm pretty sure he or she will have to handle a big crisis of that nature. How do you prepare for these surprises on a large scale should be part of the portfolio of uh, any president or prime ministers or someone in power today? Same thing in the private sector with growing interdependencies around the world. It's very unlikely that as a director on the board, you will not have to handle some of these crises in the next two to three years. So just just get prepared for it. It's coming your way. I think I would add in closing that the terrain here is really
2: captured by two words, risk and resilience. So if risks are up, and historically they are, in terms of their financial impact, up over the last 20 years now, we've got to become better at resilience. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the people we're responsible for. And on the resilience side, we found in Chile... Uh, a pair of factors that are also the same factors that are emerging from a study we're doing on America's 500 largest publicly traded firms. We've been inside many of those companies, and we find there, and we found unequivocally in Chile, that uh, for that resilience to be there in light of the increase in risk that we face, we need great institutional values, r- rule of law, enforcement, enforcement, Insurance that's there, a commitment to fund out of not thin air, but uh, real sources of cash uh, recovery, and leadership of people who do have the levers in front of them. You need both. Can't go. We don't want to face a future without each. But put together, we find in many companies now, and certainly in the case of Chile that as risks are up, resilience is going to be stronger if we've got great leadership and great institutional values.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.